0: I got to the point where I had two full time jobs and I quit my job. Called my partner that I was working with at that point in time and said, Hey, good news. Because I was having trouble keeping up. I said, Good news. I just quit my job. Said, We're going to go into this full time and let's really nail this thing. And on the other end of the phone, I heard nothing but silence. Big, long pause. And then he goes, <sighs> <laughs> And I'm going, What's the matter? What happened? What's the problem? He unfortunately had already decided that he was ready to go in a different direction. That was a tough time. That was really, really hard to make those hard decisions, to look people in the eye that helped you get to where you were and say, you know what? You're not cutting the mustard anymore. Knowing what I know today, my recommendation, as strange as it may sound, I wish I could have. The problem is it takes passion to be an entrepreneur. There are as many down times and bad days as there are good days. So if you're not passionate about what you're doing, then you're already starting yourself at a disadvantage. My name is Andy Joseph, the president of Apex Supercritical. I am 47 years old and talking to you today from Johnstown, Ohio,
1: which is a suburb of Columbus. And is that where your company's located? It is. Okay. You're actually in Ohio? I thought you were somewhere else. I thought you were as far as what we're dealing with. Yeah, that's kind of surprising. Tell us what your company does. That's the only reason I was like, I thought we were definitely in Colorado.
0: Sure. It's pretty common thought process. Right. Especially for those who aren't intimately familiar with the kind of the cannabis industry and what's going on.
1: Right.
0: Apex Supercritical manufactures botanical oil extraction systems. And specifically, our systems utilize carbon dioxide, liquid carbon dioxide, or sometimes what's called supercritical carbon dioxide as a solvent. These botanical oil extraction systems will utilize CO2 to dissolve oils out of plant materials, cannabis, in the majority of our cases here recently. It'll dissolve the oils out of the cannabis material. Those oils contain things like cannabinoids and terpenes, the THC or the CBD that a lot of people are familiar with and effectively concentrate them. So it removes them from the plant, concentrates them, turns them into an oil that's usable in a lot of the other forms that are becoming popular today in both medical and recreational spaces. The oils can be used for things like pills, capsules, tinctures, and you know, what are becoming a lot more popular, vape pens, which are electronic cigarettes with, instead of having tobacco or nicotine oil, they'll have cannabis oil, essentially. And the other real prominent product type, and especially that's growing just extremely rapidly right now within a very rapidly growing industry is the edible and drinkable type of products. So your chocolates, your mints, your throat lozenges, your elixirs, your drinks. And as you're seeing a lot of activity coming up this year with folks like Molson and the guys that do Corona, making cannabis-infused beers, basically non-alcoholic beverages that have cannabis instead of alcohol in them. So it's a very popular product that all is generated as a result of the extraction process. That's kind of the first step in getting these oils that are utilized for all those different types of products out of the plant material. And the equipment that we manufacture, CO2 extraction equipment, is utilized heavily by the cannabis industry for those types of products.
1: Okay. So you actually make the machines or whatever to help the cannabis industry extract these type of oils you're saying?
0: Exactly. We are an equipment manufacturer located in Johnstown, Ohio. We're referred to a lot of times as an ancillary product supplier to the cannabis industry. That's a key separation because obviously still aware cannabis is illegal on a federal level. So many states have legalized medical and 10 or so states have legalized recreational, but it's still illegal on a federal level. And that creates all kinds of business complexities and challenges to operate within As an ancillary product supplier, we don't touch the plant. We don't actually do the extractions. We just build the equipment and then ship it to places like Colorado, for instance, or more recently, Ohio, because Ohio's legalized medical marijuana. Our customers will then take the equipment, utilize it to extract the oils, and then generally they'll create some kind of secondary product like we're discussing.
1: Was this your business plan even maybe five, 10 years ago? Because I mean, before it started becoming legal in states, Not enough people are actually doing this for other plants, or can you just walk us through how your company's evolved overall?
0: Sure. The story's a little bit torturous, but basically it starts with me and the military. I spent six years in nuclear submarines as a machinist mate, which is basically a mechanic, operating the propulsion plant and the life safety systems aboard the submarine and supporting the mechanical portions of the nuclear reactor. That gave me the foundation for what will become, I didn't realize it at the time, but it gave me the foundation for what would become these extraction systems that we manufacture at Apex Supercritical. Once I got out of the Navy, I went to Ohio State University and started working towards my welding engineering degrees. Welding engineering is kind of a niche degree set within Ohio State's much larger engineering program. And while I was doing that, I got an internship at a company that does research and development and consulting work in the welding industry. Well, lo and behold, while I was there at that job as an intern, a couple of the engineers were having me as an intern do these like goofy side projects. I would be making handles and making little brackets and making different pieces parts that just didn't quite seem like it was up the alley of these consulting projects that were within the company. And so I was doing these things and I said, all right, guys, what's this really for? And turns out that they were doing a side job themselves for a customer who wanted a botanical oil extraction equipment. Now, this is late 90s, almost maybe 98, 99. And as an intern, I'm working on the stuff. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll do it. It all pays the same for me. It was just a broke college student at that point. Fast forward a couple of years and those two engineers ended up going and working for it. They were PhDs and I ended up working for Ford and BP as a very high level welding engineers. And I was left kind of The responsibility, if you want to call it that, to continue the manufacturing and fabrication of these, what were a side job at the time, botanical oil extractors. For a customer who was really kind of trying to push these things out into the industry, time frame here is 2000, maybe 2001. After I graduated and got my engineering degree, I quickly moved into a management position. And so I enjoyed this fabrication stuff. I enjoyed getting my hands dirty and lost the opportunity to do it as a manager. So I kept doing it as a side job. I took it more seriously. I really focused on it, tried to get it to a point where we were doing proper engineering designs and proper fabrication techniques. It wasn't just a side job in the back shop of this R&D lab. Fast forward from what is about 2001, 2002, all the way to 2012, and the original designs that we had manufactured for these things were flavorings, natural products, nutraceuticals. They weren't cannabis applications One specific thing that we worked on was a Kava Kava extraction. So we were designing and building these botanical oil extractors. Some of them were ethanol based, utilized ethanol, which is basically 200 proof alcohol, utilized ethanol as a solvent. But what really kind of caught my eye and I found myself enjoying designing and building and researching were CO2 extraction systems. From 2002 all the way up until 2012, I continued to build and design these systems 100% as a side job. I had gotten to a point where I was a director of a business unit within that consulting firm that I I was working at as an intern, but I was still doing Apex Supercritical as a side job, essentially, in a pole barn in my backyard. Somewhere around 2009 or 2010, the cannabis industry found us. The cannabis industry, in particular in California, had really, really started to gain a lot of momentum, medical cannabis at the time. And what I was finding is there was a lot of doctors that were very interested in being able to acquire these concentrated products. No longer did they want flour to be a medicine because they could have patients that have emphysema, lung cancer, or some other condition that would prevent them from smoking. And so these concentrated products, things like vaporizing pens or oils, were very desirable to the doctors because they could provide their patients a cannabis therapy that didn't require smoking. So as legalization started to really take off in the 2009-2010, so did the demand for these CO2 extraction systems. And it's an important to point out that the reason they were focused on CO2 as opposed to other solvents that were currently available, in particular butane and propane, was the cleanliness. Remember, this is still an underground industry. And so you can't just go to like a pharmaceutical company and get extracted cannabis oil for your patients. You Pretty much still have to go underground. And most of the underground operations were using a solvent called butane, which is lighter fluid. Very, very dangerous operating conditions and also potentially toxic for the end user because butane at some point in time was in the ground. It could have leached heavy metals and things like that. So in the 2009-2010 timeframe when these concentrated cannabis products were becoming popular, medical doctors were finding that CO2 was a cleaner option to provide to their patients. So 2009-2010, all of a sudden there's this huge demand for our products, these CO2 extraction products, and we really started to focus on it. 2012 got to the point where I had two full-time jobs. Now my hobby, my side business has really just exploded and it, it takes more time, spending more time on the weekends and evenings than working on this stuff than I was at my real job as a director of this business unit. So I made the leap. And 2012 is also the same year that Colorado and Washington legalized recreationally. So At that point in time, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, hey, this is a tremendous opportunity to really continue to advance the products that have been developing over the past 12 or 13 years in an industry that, while risky, there's no question that was risky, wasn't so risky anymore. So 2012, I made the leap. I started focusing on Apex in a full-time capacity, quit my real job. And that's really kind of when Apex's growth started to happen. From a revenue standpoint, Apex started revenue in, in 2012 when I went full-time. We did somewhere in the neighborhood of $750,000, which was a lot. I, you know, I thought, holy cow, this is incredible. How are we going to do this? 2013, we did $3.2 million. 2014, we did $9 million. In 2015, we did $12.5 million. And so we were on this just absolutely incredible ride. And all as a result of cannabis. By that point in time, we had 99% of what we were doing was focused specifically on the cannabis industry
1: still on that trajectory?
0: Yeah. Well, so I pause there. This is where an inflection point comes in and I want to make sure you're still okay with me uh, just kind of babbling here.
1: It's fine. And I appreciate that. I just wanted to know, I guess if you go back to revenue, then I'm going to come back and ask you a few questions and then we can keep going with the story. That's okay.
0: Okay. So by 2015, we hit 12 and a half million somewhere in that neighborhood. And that earned us the position of the 24th fastest growing private company in the US by Inc. 500. And so we were on this wild rocket, this hockey stick, essentially. 2016 was actually an inflection point for us. It was a little bit challenging. We tapered off. 2016, we did 10 million, actually dropped a little bit. And that was a huge surprise. We were absolutely not expecting that. I was anticipating getting up to 20, maybe even 30 million on the trajectory we were going on. 2017 came along, we did 11 million. 2018 came, and the first half of 2018 was pretty tough. We were looking pretty bleak. Fortunately, by the end of 2018, we had turned things around. I ended up hitting another about 12 million. So I had three or maybe even four years of flatness, let's call it. But this year, 2019, so starting really at the end of 2018, but certainly through 2019, we've picked our trajectory back up. We should be somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 22 million.
1: Congratulations. I guess it always feels good to be able to write the ship again.
0: Yes, it feels good. When you're an entrepreneur and you own 100% of the company, that flat period, we were never losing money. We've always been profitable. We just weren't quite as profitable. And being flat in a very rapidly growing industry is a death sentence. Right. So that was stressful.
1: Yeah. No, I'm feeling it. And we can go back to those little points. But again, to make sure everyone's on the same page, luckily, I'm looking at your website, getting an idea of what you actually build. Mm -hmm. Is there an easy way for you to explain? Because again, it's audio. So a lot of people are listening. I mean, I'm looking at some of these machines. So you build these actual machines, I guess, that these guys buy from you. And, I'm looking at one machine that costs 86,000 bucks and another one that costs almost 450,000 bucks. And I don't know if there's an easy way for you to demonstrate over audio, again, what your machines look like or what they do so everyone can get an idea of like these things of how you ship them to them and get a better idea of what your company does. Sure. The
0: equipment operates fundamentally on the premise that a solvent, in this case, it's carbon dioxide, the solvent can dissolve the oil out of the plant material and essentially concentrate it. Think of removing the oil from the plant material as a concentration process. A real easy example is like vanilla extract, right? If you put a vanilla bean into a tube of alcohol or vodka, the oils will leach out and then you can remove what's left, the vanilla bean carcass, let's call it, right? The plant material and and what you've extracted out of the oils or the essence of the vanilla bean. Very, very similar process happens here, except we're utilizing cannabis and the solvent of choice is carbon dioxide. And where the challenge comes in, you know, vodka, you can sit in a bottle and room temperature, it's a liquid. Carbon dioxide is, we most people recognize, when we breathe it out, it's a gas. It's a gas at room temperature, room pressure. So in order to get carbon dioxide into a liquid form, you have to put it under significantly higher pressure. And specifically, we operate at either 1,200 PSI all the way up to 4,000 or even 5,000 PSI. And the act of compressing the CO2, the carbon dioxide, up to those pressures and basically converts it into a liquid. And if you heat it above ninety degrees Fahrenheit approximately, it turns into what's called a supercritical fluid. And that's where apex supercritical comes from. It's the phase in which carbon dioxide operates. Supercritical is kind of a unique combination of a gas and a liquid. But not to dive too far into the technical details, just realize that these pieces of equipment are essentially pressure vessels that contain the carbon dioxide at a high enough pressure to keep it a liquid. And while it's a liquid it acts like a solvent and dissolves those oils out. The other parts of the piece of equipment, so you have what's called an extraction vessel. That's where kind of the magic happens, where you load your plant material into this extraction vessel. You close the vessel. You load carbon dioxide into it at a high pressure and flow the carbon dioxide through it. As it's flowing through, it grabs the oil from the plant material. You then take that saturated carbon dioxide that's got oil mixed within it put it over into what's called a separation vessel where we decompress that liquid carbon dioxide. When you decompress it, it turns back into a gas and loses its solvency characteristics. So it's no longer a solvent. Decompress it, turn it into a gas. All the oil that was in solution that was being carried in it, it all drops into this separation vessel, specifically a collection vessel down on the bottom. The gaseous CO2 and then gets separated from that oil and goes back to a compressor. Gets compressed and also through a heat management system or a thermal management system that then treats the CO2 thermally, basically brings it up to the appropriate temperature so that it can be recycled and reused. If you're familiar with an air conditioning system, these things operate almost exactly the same way an air conditioner operates, but instead of having Freon, it's got CO2. Biggest difference is we don't necessarily want the heat and cold that comes from the compression and decompression of the CO2, we just have to have it. Physics demands that we have to have a decompression cooling effect. Therefore, we have a compression heating effect. Get rid of all that stuff, and, and we utilize the thermal management system to essentially offset those two. So it's very similar in operation to an air conditioner, but instead of heating cooling the air, it actually decompresses and compresses to extract the oils from the plant material.
1: Hopefully, that helped. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps, and like I said, it's like. Going to see a psychiatrist, talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our (laughs) problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it and we talk, something else will enter our brains. and, And we're like, okay, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. So I think a lot of people who listen to podcasts, like they're listening to you right now, I think they listen passively, when maybe while they're doing something else. But I think right now, if anyone's listening, it might be worth just pausing the episode and going to your website to kind of check out this system. Because you even have a YouTube video of what it looks like, these machines. Because, yeah, I think you did a great job of doing your best to try to describe what this machine looks like and does. Because, again, it sounds like, obviously, one of these more complex businesses that, again, I don't think a lot of people think of. Like I said, when I thought originally you might've been actually in Colorado, it's because you're saying, okay, weed's legal there. So I'm like, okay, I just assume maybe that you're there, but you're kind of an offset where you're a company actually helping those companies. So seems like a perfect position for you. Again, as you kind of walked us through your growth, I know we had some stagnation there for a little bit, but it is super interesting that you even came across this. So, I mean, did you grow up wanting to like be an engineer and design these type of systems or can we kind of bring it back to how you got started? Because again, we kind of went briefly through in five to 10 minutes of your growth, if you will.
0: Yeah, sure. So I've always been mechanically inclined. I don't know that I necessarily wanted to be an engineer when I was a kid, but I think I wanted to be an anesthesiologist because they made the most money, and according to the middle school survey that, that I was taking. But I can't stand the sight of blood and could never be a doctor and an anesthesiologist. So my first exposure, I suppose, to the engineering world was actually from my dad. He was a machinist in the Navy and ran a manufacturing facility here in Ohio. He also showed me the welding engineering department at Ohio State while I was still in high school. At that point in time, I decided that I didn't want to go to college, and so I went into the nuclear Navy and did that. But it always kind of stuck with me. I kind of knew I wanted to go back to Ohio State and do the welding engineering program. And as what was called a non-traditional college student, I was 24 and had spent six years in the military, I was significantly more disciplined about studying and being able to go to college and be successful. So College was actually pretty easy for me, but the engineering stuff really kind of comes natural. It really has always been a passion, something I'm interested in. Obviously, I'm I'm degreed, but I really like getting my hands dirty. I like the nuts and bolts and the technology side of it. These pieces of equipment that we manufacture are extremely niche There's a very, very small niche that they fulfill. And it's worth noting that CO2 as a technology has been around for a long time. It was discovered back in the 50s that it could be used as a solvent. But it's really never had an opportunity to kind of flourish in what I term a mid-market application, where you've got the kind of a situation where CO2 is utilized in laboratories and test areas and things like that, universities, and a few very, very large operations that do like coffee decaffeination. But There was never really a middle ground where CO2 could find itself because it's expensive, right? Getting the equipment to a point where it can run at high pressures that we're talking about costs a lot of money. The equipment is very expensive. As you said, the least expensive one that we offer is $86,000, and they go up to 450000 for our kind of standard, most expensive unit. But these things can run into the millions easily. At a cost like that, the capitalization is very significant. CO2 needed, a technology needed, a high-value, low-volume product. Along came cannabis, and that's where the two have really found the marriage, if you want to call it that. And CO2 has been able to flourish. Companies like ours have been able to invest and reinvest in the technology. And you know, now the systems that we manufacture are every bit of 10 or maybe even 100 times faster than the equipment that we built just five or six years ago.
1: Wow, yeah, and that's what I was actually curious. I was kind of leading to my next question is this like how this evolved over this point in time. Because honestly, all the stuff that you've been saying, I don't know how many of our engineers or understand the whole concept of you even using the vanilla bean, getting vanilla extract. I thought that was a great example. I didn't know that's how they got vanilla extract, but mm-hmm. it's very interesting that I don't know if you keep putting money into figuring out different ways to make this more efficient and then selling bigger and better units or what, because it looks like you may have four units or so or systems. Maybe there might be more, but I don't know if you do custom ones as well. Can you talk us about that, about the growth of your company as far as making everything more efficient, these systems that you're selling to other companies?
0: Sure. The earlier systems that we manufactured were much smaller and less expensive. They're also much slower from a throughput standpoint. In other words, how many pounds per day or pounds per hour they could process. And as the cannabis industry grew, so did the size of our customers. And so as our customers started to grow and the demand for cannabis products started to go, the higher throughputs became necessary. So it's all been an evolution. As the cannabis industry is growing, the need for higher throughputs is coming along. At the same time, we're reinvesting in our company to be able to increase the efficiencies and the throughput of these different pieces of equipment. But it's important to note that it's not all just happening at once. You can't look at the entire United States and say everybody in the cannabis industry is growing at the same rate there's still a lot of states that haven't even legalized. So the different product types that we offer, there's four different variations of the product called a Bambino is the smallest one, all the way up to the force being our biggest one. But there's a transition between them. So the Bambino is our smallest unit and it's really designed for startups. So for instance, a medical state that just legalized and we have got a new license set comes out. There's not really an established marketplace in that state. So a lot of our customers will start with a smaller Bambino system because one, it's cheaper. And two, it also has the ability to be part of our, what we call trade-up program. Trade-up program allows the customer to turn that system back into us and we'll give them a credit towards the purchase of one of the larger scale systems. For instance, the Bambino can be traded in for the next size up, which is the transformer. Right, The transformer is named that because we see that particular category of system. The throughput is really when companies are in their transformation stage. So they're no longer a startup. They're really starting to gain some momentum and inertia, getting some demand for their products through their first product development sequence, and they're growing, they're transforming. Once they get to the point where they need some significant output, they're really into a high output situation, that's where the duplex and the force come in. And again, Bambino, Transformer, duplex, force, those are our four product categories, but they all rely on the same technology. We've been very diligent to make sure as we develop these different pieces of equipment, these different models, if you want to call them, the technology is the same throughout. What that means is as you scale, as our customers scale, they can feel comfortable that even if they start with a Bambino, when they move into the transformer or even into the duplex or the force, the product they are going to get out of the machine is going to be the same. That's extremely important because the extract that comes out of these machines is generally termed a crude. It's basically an unfinished or a raw product, and it needs some kind of refinement to go through and become a final product before you can put it onto a customer or a shelf for a customer to be able to buy. A Similar concept is crude oil coming out of the ground oil and gas industry, things like crude oil can be turned into gasoline and lubrications and gear oil and grease. That all happens in a refinement process, but the act of getting it out of the ground is a lot of times termed extraction. These systems kind of have a similar concept from the standpoint that the very, very first product that comes out of that plant material is typically a goopy peanut butter consistency kind of product. And a lot of times need to be refined and separated to be able to create the different end products like vaporizing pens or edibles or some of the other recreational products that are out there. So there's a lot of product development and refinement that happens after the extractions are done. We've developed and designed these different product categories to allow our customers to grow. So the Bambino to the transformer, that step is going to give the customer the same quality, the same type of initial product from the extraction with higher throughput. Same thing when you go from the transformer to the duplex. It's going to give you the same quality, the same consistency of the output, but a much, much higher throughput. And that's the fundamental difference between the platforms.
1: It is interesting. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine. And thank you for telling me what the output was. Again, I think you're just reading my mind because I'm wondering if someone's trying to imagine you just take a cannabis plant, cut it up, put it in something like a size of a microwave, and then the goo comes out the other end. I'm trying to imagine like (laughs) how much they're putting in there and how much comes out.
0: Yeah, so... The plant material is generally prepared as you described. You'll take the cannabis plant or hemp is becoming very popular as well for CBD products. Take those plant material. Typically, it's going to be dried in a drying environment. doesn't necessarily have to be baked, but there are some advantages to that. But either way, typically, it's going to be dried plant material. You're going to grind it. Think granulated sugar kind of size, not necessarily powdered sugar, but granulated sugar. So you're going to grind it to a consistency that's similar to coffee or granulated sugar. And then you're going to load it into what's called the extraction vessel. Extraction vessel can hold anywhere from, in the case of the Bambino, about two, maybe three pounds of plant material, all the way up to our force or duplex system can hold up to 40 pounds of plant material. So the plant material is loaded into the extraction vessel.
1: And I imagine whoever's doing this loading has to pay attention because if they spill it, they're in trouble.
0: Yeah, the commoditization of the industry has definitely driven the value of the product down. It's not like I got, you know, a little baggy of stuff anymore. These guys are handling significant volumes of it. So a little bit of spillage here and there, while certainly not desirable, isn't necessarily a huge deal. An interesting sideline on it. The guy that puts it in there, turns out there's a lot of people who are in the cannabis industry who've actually become allergic to cannabis. That ground plant material can create quite a bit of dust as you're loading it and unloading it. And a surprising number of our customers are actually allergic You know, the operators are allergic to the cannabis plant. So you'll see a lot of times in pictures of people loading the equipment, actually wearing full face masks, full dust masks to be able to, and respirators to be able to prevent the cannabis from being basically
1: breathed in when it's in powder form. Maybe they do that on purpose to make sure the guy's not accidentally spilling it into his pocket, right?
0: Well, yeah, there's, yeah, diversion's definitely a challenge, but it's kind of just like anything else. The biggest problems with diversion and theft really from cannabis operations from our customers really isn't on the dried plant material stage. It's much more on the finished product stage. And there's a lot more value in the extracted oil that's been concentrated than there is in the, for the raw plant material.
1: Yeah, let's talk about the smallest machine. You said about three pounds and tell us about how much comes out or walk us through that process.
0: Yep. So you'll in, in the Bambinos, you get about two and a half, maybe three pounds of plant material into the extraction vessel, that particular system takes anywhere from three to maybe even six hours. Again, very, very slow throughput on this particular one. It takes about three to six hours, and the output is generally going to be somewhere between 10 and maybe 20%, depending on the the quality of the plant material. In other words, if it's uh, real fresh buds that are flower material from the canvas, or it's just like fan leaves and kind of the bottom end of the plant. So you'll get somewhere between 10 and 20% of a yield out that Basically, so it's easier to think of the numbers on the transformer. Transformer will hold about ten pounds of plant material. Processing times are about an hour per pound. And so you'll look at about ten hours on ten pounds, you're gonna get the same ten to twenty percent yield. Okay, so ten pounds in, you're gonna get about a pound of oil out. Now, if we want to start doing some math and economics, a pound of oil, or in the case if you're running flowers, more like two pounds of oil, a pound is four hundred and fifty-four grams. Gram sells for anywhere between fifteen and maybe twenty dollars a finished product. And so when you start doing the math, if we're doing 10 pounds every 10 hours, we do 20 pounds a day and we're charging somewhere in the 15, maybe $20 a gram for the finished product. The return on investment on these pieces of equipment, although they cost $100,000, $200,000, even $400,000, the return on investments are typically less than a month, maybe even two months.
1: So you would be stupid to not buy one from you right now, huh?
0: Well, right. I mean,
1: it's (laughs) an easy sell.
0: Unfortunately, it's not that easy. You know, the reality is while the return on investment on the piece of equipment can be less than two months, this piece of equipment and this step that we're describing, this extraction step, is only one of multiple steps in the process. And this is actually kind of like a sales conversation we'll typically have. Somebody will call us and say, okay, I heard about it on TV and I want to get into it. I'm at Green Rush and I want to get a piece. So we talk about extraction, we talk about return on investment, people start really excited. I'm in, where do I send the check? Hold on, it's not quite that simple. Extraction is only one step of a multi-step process. And beyond just the technical piece of doing the extraction and the formulation of final products, there's a business to be run. There's advertising, there's cash management, there's insurance, there's employees and HR. There's a whole entire business to run. And unfortunately, not all of our customers are successful. And a lot of times it's because they are excited about cannabis. They're cannabis aficionados, but they aren't necessarily business experts and lack business acumen. And so, you know, while they might be able to run the machine really well, or they might be able to have some really great feedstock going into it, they lack the ability to put together a strong campaign and advertising program. They struggle to have cash managed practices. All the things that every entrepreneurial business requires in order to be successful applies to the cannabis industry just the same as anywhere else the industry is going crazy and the return on investments are extremely high, you have to have all the other pieces of the puzzle
1: to be successful. So again, talking about the smallest one, is this the size of a bedroom or, again, visually trying to imagine if the size of these machines, the smallest one versus the biggest one?
0: Yeah, the physical footprint of the smallest system is somewhere, let's say about 10 foot by 10 foot, the 10 foot by 10 foot space. It's not quite that big, but it's close. The larger system is more in the 10 foot by maybe 15 foot kind of footprint.
1: So they're all about the same size?
0: Yeah. I mean, they do get a little bit bigger. Maybe the absolute biggest one probably stretches out to maybe a 20 foot footprint, but they're not massive. I mean, you know, the size of a small car or maybe a big car in the in the case of the bigger ones, but they are extremely expensive because the larger systems, the high output systems run at up to 5,000 PSI. And so a vessel that's designed and capable of holding that much pressure back is extremely expensive. And that's what drives a lot of the cost in these things.
1: If I'm going to fill up my tire at the tire place, do you know what PSI that runs up to? Because I'm trying to imagine what the difference.
0: Yeah. So your tires are going to run at somewhere around 20, maybe 30 PSI. These things are running at 5,000 PSI.
1: Yeah, but I didn't know that if the actual machine runs at a certain PSI to get me to the whatever PSI I need to. Cause, sorry, you broke up there for a second. I don't know if I heard that right. So your
0: tires 20, maybe 30 PSI? Right. Whereas these pieces of equipment run at 5,000 PSI?
1: Right. But that's a pressure within the actual tire. But how about the machine that I get it from? Does not it have to be at a higher PSI to give me the output to the actual tire? Or no? Am I thinking about this incorrectly?
0: So an air compressor that fills up your tire, I have a tank that fills up to about 100 PSI. And that 100 PSI is high enough to force itself into a 30
1: PSI tire. And yours, again, are at 5,000? That's correct. Okay. So that just gives us at least a perspective. I think I'm just trying to think of ordinary things for people who aren't in this industry or engineering industry to get a good idea of what perspective, if you will.
0: Yep. They're very niche, They're very technical pieces of equipment, but the business itself isn't really that much different than any other business out there. It's got its complexities and challenges that once you take the technical aspect out
1: of it, it isn't a whole lot different than making a pair of shoes. I bring this up time and time again, all different type of entrepreneurs, because The same business practices apply to all different types of industries, but yours is so niche and so at the forefront is kind of interesting. And I guess you were saying a lot of your customers still have those business challenges. It's kind of like the cryptocurrency wave as far as people getting all stoked and kind of jumping on a bandwagon and then might be doing well. But then again, you have to remember the fundamentals of running a business like you were saying. So as far as you shipping these out, you're saying the biggest issues that these companies were having were like marketing or could you walk us through that? Because maybe you have a customer who's listening now and they want to make sure that they don't have these same issues.
0: You kind of hit it on the head there with the cryptocurrency. It's another example of a bright, shiny market that people say, oh, I want to get a piece of that. The problem is it takes passion to be an entrepreneur. There are as many down times and bad days as there are good days. And so I can talk about you know, all my success and all that kind of stuff. There's many, many sleepless nights where things just suck. And the only thing that gets you through those times and those periods when it sucks is passion. So if you're not passionate about what you're doing, then you're already starting yourself at a disadvantage. At the same time, it's also to be a successful entrepreneur, I believe you have to be really good at filling in the holes. And that makes you a generalist by nature, right? You have to be kind of good at every single aspect of the business, marketing, finance, sales, human resources, all that kind of stuff. Because until you're at a point where you're big enough to hire somebody to do those things who can be your expert, you got to muddle your way through it in order to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to be good at everything. Generally, you're not great at all of them. So you have to be really, really great at something and everybody's got their passion and it's important that you find that passion. But to be an entrepreneur and be successful, you've got to be good at all of the rest of the stuff. Because especially as a startup, you're the fill-in guy. The entrepreneur is the guy that does all the other stuff that you don't have somebody else to do. Many of our customers, they get a little bit overzealous and jump in too fast, don't have all of the pieces of the puzzle to be successful in a business. And even worse, sometimes we'll, especially it was very common in the earlier days, five years ago, it's not that old of an industry, I guess. But back in the earlier days, there would still be people that would say, oh, you know what, I'm going to get in the industry, but I'm not going to advertise. I'm just going to lay low. I'm not going to do anything you know, to really bring attention to myself. And six months later, they're going, oh, I don't understand. I don't have any customers. Nobody's taking over. And it's because they made the conscious choice to try to avoid the risk of legal implications or legal issues and didn't advertise their business? In what world could you not advertise a business and expect to be successful? And those are some of the, I'm going to use the word rookie mistakes that I think a lot of people that are getting into kind of these bright and shiny industries make. They think that it's somehow different. It doesn't require all of the stuff that if you were going to try to compete with Nike or Apple, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm not going to advertise. The cannabis industry, the crypto industry, you know, any of these other newly fast growing industries, that's insane. You have to jump into it feet first, accept the risks for what they are, and treat it like a regular business. And that's where, again, it's unfortunate. I hate to see it, but we've seen a number of our customers ultimately fail, not because they can't be good extractors, not because they don't have good product, but they don't have good business acumen.
1: Well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to get involved, ask a question, you know, which. I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out kind of like podcasting. I don't know if it's still quote unquote hot, you know, but everyone's still trying to get the joke right when I even launch this podcast They're like launching your own podcast is like having your own band in high school where everyone had their own band. But there are so many other people that they wonder why their podcast wasn't successful. And some of them had good audio quality and whatnot, but it's like they didn't think about, oh yeah, I have to market the podcast in order to get listeners. If you don't do that, how is anyone going to find it? Are you not proud of your product? Is that part of the reason? You know, so maybe that's part of the reason that you don't want to market it, but if you're going to do everything else perfect and you're not going to market it. It's just silly. It never made sense to me when people didn't take the time of like, oh, what? No one's listening to my podcast because I was in all these different podcast groups. I'm like, well, what are you doing to try to find listeners? And they're like, nothing. Right. <laughs> right. What do you think's going to happen? You know, like it's not that hard. They're just going to find me. They're magically going to come to me. Right.
0: I got a handful of little kids and they all love YouTube and they love YouTubers. They all want to be YouTubers. Like, all right, well, what are you going to do to differentiate yourself from the other YouTubers that are out there? You can't just copy the same thing these other guys are doing. I'm like, well, why not? What he does is cool and I like it. (laughs) So
1: a little bit more learning to do with my kids here. Well, it's better they learn now than later, because just like you're saying, it's kind of simple business processes or ideas that we get from all the guests that we have on. It's just what makes you different? How are you going to market it? Those things actually matter. Again, you want a fantastic product, but even if it was not a great product and you're able to market it, then I think you're going to be more successful than if you had the perfect product and marketed to nobody.
0: Yeah, marketing is absolutely important. But you know what else is important? Cash flow. If you can't manage cash or you don't have enough cash to be able to make payroll or those kind of things, you're going to go out of business. You don't have cash to pay your marketing groups. You're going to go out of business. I didn't go to any kind of entrepreneurial school. I just got lucky, I guess. But at the end of the day, if I could have gone back and had an entrepreneurial school, the one thing that I wish they would emphasize more, I would had better
1: cues into, is the requirement
0: to be able to do everything. Every aspect of business is important.
1: And if you just take one piece of the puzzle out, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. You even mentioned that. It's just, again, trying to make sure you understand that you can't be just great at one thing and ignore the other stuff or else you're screwed or else you need to be an employee somewhere because then you can be great at that one thing and not worry about the thing as a whole.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: I appreciate you bringing that up for sure. Yep. So going back to your story, what were the hardest things that you had to overcome? Again, I know we were doing great for a while from 2012 to 2015 and then you said you had a little downturn. Was that the hardest part or what can you tell us about the hardest part about growing Apex Supercritical?
0: I had two hard parts. I'll do them backwards. My second hard part was that downturn that you just described there. From 2012 all the way up to 2015, we were on what I would call hockey stick growth, right? Exponential growth rate. I think it was somewhere in the 8,000 some odd percent growth. And we were doing everything we could to hold on. Basically, if we picked up the phone, we got an order. It was almost that simple. Right. And you know, these are $100,000 pieces of equipment. It's not like it was just a pair of shoes or something inexpensive. What we didn't do and what was only can be learned, I think anyway, only was able to learn through hindsight because we didn't prepare for the competition. And at that point in time between 2012, 2015, there were really only three providers of this type of equipment in the industry. And by 2016, there were 30. Wow. And so we just weren't prepared for the competition. We didn't even know what was coming. And this big, huge wave of competition came in right around the same time that 2015, 2016, While we had a good product, we hadn't put all the rest of the pieces of the puzzle together. We didn't have a strong enough sales process. We were very reactive. We weren't being proactive in sales. We didn't have a strong enough service program put together, and we weren't able to service and support our customers well enough. We were focused everything on production, just get these things out the door, fulfill the orders, fulfill the orders, and really weren't even putting enough emphasis on advertising and marketing and branding. So we were kind of our, you know, victim of this thing that I'm talking about here being good at everything. We didn't anticipate the onslaught of competition in this rapidly growing industry and subsequently paid the price. We went from hockey stick growth to flat almost overnight. And the time period from 2016 through 2017 and to the beginning of eighteen, we were flat at somewhere around ten or twelve million. And again, never not profitable. we were never at risk of going out of business. But when you're on hockey stick growth and you go flat, well, that's a tough lesson. That's a really, really tough time and a whole lot of reflection on what is going wrong. It's easy for me to sit here today and say exactly what was going wrong. But when we were in the thick of it, it was tough. We're doing what I call the rolling two million. Every month it would be like the sales guys would tell me, Oh yeah, we're gonna get another two million dollars coming in this month. This is the month. And then by the end of the month, you know, be like, oh well, those guys weren't ready and this thing happened and that thing happened. And but those guys, the same groups, they're going to pull the trigger next month. This month we only got a hundred thousand. You told me the whole month we're going to get two million. Those types of problems is really had to reflect deeply and say, you know what, I've got the wrong team, and I had to make some really really tough choices and change from the guys that made us successful in the hockey stick to a completely different group of people in a different mindset, much more process oriented, more experienced, things like that. That was a tough time. That was really, really hard to make those hard decisions, to look people in the eye that helped you get to where you were and say, you know what? You're not cutting the mustard anymore. To make some of the changes that we had to make on personnel, to make investments at a point in time when cash wasn't just flowing in the door anymore. At that 15 to 16 transition, we had just moved into a $2 million building. And then all of a sudden, all our cash went away because we weren't bringing in new orders. So there were a couple of times where I'm kind of looking at my own personal bank account and saying to my wife, we might have to draw into our own personal account to make payroll. Those are hard choices and hard times that, like I mentioned before, really only passion gets you through those weak times.
1: What did she say when you mentioned that to her?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the initial reaction was kind of cross look that you can expect.
1: Yeah, I just saw my wife walk in and i me like, I know, imagine what she looked like.
0: <laughs> After the kind of initial shock of what happened, why are we in this situation? Then it was, well, you know, what we need to do to make this work. She recognized it as my
1: passion. And honestly, it got you to that point too, right? The ability to have money saved up from it, right? That's exactly
0: right. Rewinding. So that was kind of, you know, my second rough moment, if you want to call it that, or really hard time in that business.
1: And before you jump to that first moment, so I guess to summarize, you're saying basically getting rid of the people that helped you get to that point. I mean, so how many people did you have to lay off? It sounded like it was mainly the sales guys was the issue.
0: It was primarily the sales staff. There was only one or two people at that point, but it's still a rough point in time. And they weren't laid off. They were absolutely fired. That was tough. And good people sometimes just couldn't get us to the next level. To be fair, it was as much me. I needed to make sure that we were doing the right things. And I don't have the expertise in sales to compete with as many customers that we had to compete with. I needed to bring somebody in who had that expertise. Those are some of the hard choices.
1: How many people did you have again at this point? Because we talked about sales, but I don't know how many people were actually on your team if you had to lay off two of them.
0: Yeah. So that was the entire sales team. We only had probably 15 people at that point.
1: Okay. Gotcha.
0: Maybe 15 to 20. We'd won maybe two guys in sales, guys and gals. So that was really, really tough period. And hindsight being twenty twenty, knowing what I know today, my recommendation, as strange as it may sound, I wish I could have grown faster. So we were the 24th fastest growing private company in the U.S., growth over the previous three years. And all I can do is look back and say, I wish I could have grown faster. I was pretty stubborn at that point in time and didn't want to take any investments. I owned 100%, I still own for that matter, 100% of the company. But I think that's a big piece of why we got our butts kicked in that 2016-17 kind of timeframe by all the competition that came in there. If I had been a little less stubborn and would have been more aggressive about bringing on investors and investments. We could have had resources to be able to invest in more marketing, more proactive sales team, more stronger service team, but I didn't. You know, I was like, I own 100% of this company. I don't need anybody else's money. We're doing great. And that absolutely was the downfall. So I really wanna to try to make sure this isn't pinning all the blame on the sales guys because it wasn't that. It was a combination of a whole bunch of different things, sales included, that ultimately resulted in because we weren't growing fast enough, because I was too stubborn to take on investment, causes to stagnate for a couple of years.
1: I mean, honestly, I think I'd make the same mistake. Me personally, I don't like to be in debt at all. But even if you're talking about you're an owner of the company and you own 100%, and I guess you have, I don't know venture money or any type of money that you're thinking about taking on, obviously it can help you grow faster. Also, if you're looking at your risk, obviously increases your risk too. So I guess your thought was like, I didn't want to take on extra money. Everything's growing already too fast. Is that the idea? There was no point to go ahead and do that. But looking back, you probably would have.
0: Yeah, exactly. I literally remember saying to myself, I wouldn't know what to do if somebody gave me a bunch of money. Right. Right. Because, you know, their investors are coming out of the woodwork when you're growing at that rate. I wouldn't have known what to do. If there was ever a piece of advice that I could offer somebody entrepreneurial, if they're in a fast growing industry, the competition will come. Entrepreneur in a different type of industry may not have this problem. If you're the crypto guy or you're interested in cannabis, the competition is coming. Today they're here. If you think they're here today, wait till tomorrow. Because the big guys are coming tomorrow and they've got just tons of resources. The faster you can grow, bigger piece of the pie you can get. And that's the way you succeed in a fast growing industry. There's the adage from a personal investment standpoint, you can do the whole small piece of a big pie or big piece of the whole pie. And I was a big piece of the whole pie. I owned 100%. I wanted to retain 100%. And if we weren't going to be a billion dollar corporation, instead we're going to be a $20 million corporation, I own the whole 20 million right? And that's where I wanted to be. That's where my mindset was. And that's absolutely what caused us to to ultimately end up to stagnate. And we've been able to pull out, but it took us two or three years to do it. If we had been bigger, there's no way the competition would have gotten a piece of the market share like they did in 2015 if I had been at a point where we were a much bigger entity.
1: This was your second hardest thing you were talking about, really, this 2015, 2017. We're still talking all about that. Yep. Okay. And some great stuff to think about, too. If you're in a fast growth industry, like I said, I would have made the exact mistake, I think. So it was the hardest thing that you've had to go through then?
0: My first hardest thing, and, and uh, I would say they're both equally hard, just different time period in my life, I suppose. When I made the transitions, if you remember in 2012, I said I quit my full-time job and started focusing on Apex in a full-time capacity. and so. At that point in time, I had a partner that we were working with, our customer. So it was pretty much an exclusive relationship. We did everything wrong. We were both single person entrepreneurs, two separate companies, but we were working essentially with each other in a partnership. Did everything wrong. Had no paper between us. We had no intellectual property designations. We didn't have any contracts. He basically called me up, said, Hey, do this. I would do it. And I'd say, Hey, you owe me this. And he'd send me a check. It was that good of a relationship for a solid, probably 10 years. In 2012, I got to the point where I had two full-time jobs and I quit my job, called my partner that I was working with at that point in time and said, hey, good news. Because I was having trouble keeping up. I said, good news. I just quit my job. said, we're going to go into this full-time and let's really nail this thing. And on the other end of the phone, I heard nothing but silence, big long pause. And then he goes, (sighs) (laughs) and I'm going, what's the matter? What happened? What's the problem? He, unfortunately, had already decided that he was ready to go in a different direction and start working with another manufacturer and didn't want to continue working with us, with Apex. So I quit my full-time job. I had three kids and a fourth on the way. Fortunately, my wife was still working in a corporate position, but I didn't have business cards. I didn't have a website. I didn't have any of that stuff put together. And all I had was a product. The brand wasn't recognized because I was putting this other guy's brand on all my stuff. I had to start from scratch.
1: Again to understand, could you walk us through just because I wanted to make sure that we totally understand the connection with the guy that you were working with? You're basically making this systems and putting his sticker on it so it's his brand before you went full time. Exactly. Okay.
0: So Apex originally started out as Apex fabrication. I was engineering and designing and doing all the work kind of behind the scenes, if you want to call it the technology arm for this other company. And you know, we worked together for almost twelve years. And within a month after I quit my full time job, the entire relationship fizzled out, went to zero. And I had to start from scratch. One, I had to decide, did I make the right choice? I got to go back to my boss and grovel for my job. Or am I going to say, all right, look, I believe in this product. I believe in myself. I believe in the technology. I believe in the opportunity. I just got to go out there and now compete with the guy that I just helped build up his business. And that was hard. It was a good probably six months, I think, before we got to the point where I finally made my first sale. And that's six months of zero income. I had quit my job. I had nothing coming in the door. Fortunately, you know, I had saved up a little bit of money to go through and my wife was still working. But those are some really, really tough times. It was lots of sleepless nights and it was just extremely difficult. I'll never forget my first customer, Lynn Pritchard out of uh, Arizona. He believed in me and I couldn't believe it. One day, I went out to the mailbox. There's a check for $50,000. Right after I sent the contract over, he sent me a check for 50 grand. And, oh my God, you'd think it would have been $50 million, <laughs> as excited as I was. that fifty grand, it was the confidence booster that I needed to continue to push forward and ultimately allow Apex to become what it's become. Becoming a patron was something that I was always like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I was delaying it for whatever reason. And the other day I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it and, uh, and that's it. So I'm very happy with it.
1: Nice. Well, thank you for joining. So was there anything holding you back?
0: It was just uh, taking the time to do
1: it. Gotcha. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. So um, where are you located?
0: Here in Bolivia, in South America.
1: Cool. Well, I think you're our first Patreon member from South America. So thanks for that again. And I don't know if you just saw, I just upped the group calls from once a month to twice a month. So I think that's actually where probably you'll get the most value of the membership personally. Doing the group calls, you guys get to actually, you know, ask our past guests questions, and I'm just there to facilitate it. I guess the good thing is it'd be way worse, I think, if you were on the opposite end. If you're just slapping your label on the machine, at least you actually have the machine. Basically, what you had to do is you had to make your own brand and come up with your own sales routine or whatnot, right? Is that what you had to come up with? Yep, exactly. Yeah. At least, again, you had that part versus, again, the other way around how much money did you actually have saved up over that time? Because again, that really sucks right when you make that call after you quit. If it would have been a month beforehand and you would have told him, right? You probably would have stayed at your own job, I imagine.
0: Yep. No question. Yeah. If I'd called him before I quit, <laughs> we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking today.
1: Yeah. I don't think so at all. It's crazy, you know, just timing no matter what in life, like timing is essential. And again, when that happened, what was your work life like at that point in time? Because I imagine you're going in so excited about business, going full-time in your own business. And then after that phone call, after you hang up, what's that feeling like?
0: Oh, the bottom dropped out. You know, it's that empty stomach. It totally took me by surprise. I just was not even ready for that reaction. The relationship was a little bit rocky because I was too busy, right? We had grown the, collectively, our businesses together to a point where I couldn't put enough time into the operation and had family and a full-time job. So it was already starting to become a bit strained and I could sense that, but I really thought that he was as interested in partnering and joining forces as I was. And when I got that big sigh on the other end, I was like, oh my God, I've been so naive. I looked into this thing and completely wrong. What did I do? I'm sitting there going, oh my God. I didn't want to go back to my boss and grovel for my job, but how the heck was I going to make this work? Basically my only customer just went away and I got to start from scratch.
1: And that's a good learning point if for anyone. If they only have one customer, then that's an issue, right? Yeah, no question.
0: If you're only going to have one customer, take the time to get a lawyer, do the paperwork. If there's any decent amount of money—in hundred grand, five hundred grand—we're not talking about massive amounts of money here, but it was enough money to cause consternation and challenges. And we should have taken the time to get a lawyer, taken the time to have a contract drawn up. And piece of advice that my lawyers always given me from day one: figure out how you're going to get divorced, and then that's your contract. Because if you can't figure out how you're going to get divorced, don't get married. And that's really what it comes down to in business relationships is got to have the hard conversations of what if this doesn't work? And if we had had that type of conversation, I probably would have figured out that he didn't want to work with me and wouldn't have ever
1: quit my job. Again, at least things worked out the way it did. And, you know, looking back, it's easy. But when you're in the moment, obviously, it's way different. Oh, yeah. Again, right when you found that out, I imagine I'd probably be depressed for like a day. But then, <laughs> oh, yeah. What happens for me is I realize I have to turn the light switch on and go to work. Is that what happened with you? I mean, did you just start working crazy hours to try to figure this out? Or were you looking at other jobs or what? I did it all. Yeah.
0: It was a roller coaster. I started out with. Sure, depression. Should I call my boss and ask for my job back before somebody else takes it? And then it, it goes to the other side, which is, man, I'm going to win this. I can do it. And then going back to, well, you know, the phone hasn't rang for 13 minutes, so nobody likes me. I got to go find another job. It was a roller coaster of emotions. It wasn't just any one emotion. It was all of them.
1: Yeah, I think entrepreneurship is obviously like, as many people know, is that roller coaster, but especially in the early years, or even early months, especially when you have no money coming in, I think that roller coaster is up and down way more versus like over a year, you might have a couple down years like you did, but it seems like you're on the upturn again, where it's more steady, the up and downs. But again, those first few months, especially when you have nothing coming in, I guess could make you double think everything you're doing, right?
0: Yeah, Jim Collins, good, great. He's got an absolutely fantastic analogy of the inertia or the flywheel. And when you're a startup company, you just don't have any inertia. One phone call can change the course of your entire business. One bad deal, one bad contract, one mistake. Once you get to the point where you're doing a couple million, 10 million, $20 million, you get to a point where you've got some inertia. You can handle ups and downs a little bit better, and you've got teams of people and expertise, and you got cash flow. You know, things become more stable. The bigger the business grows, the more your inertia, the more your flywheel grows. But absolutely getting that flywheel going, oh, man, oh man, those are some sleepless nights.
1: Well, Andy, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us. Do you have any last words of wisdom for everyone who's listening? Grow faster. <laughs> <laughs> there you right? go.
0: It's so easy to be a—I'm going to use the word greedy. It's—it's it's easy to be a greedy entrepreneur and say, you know, I did this and it's all mine. Some lessons: your business is never worth as much as you think it is. That's another one that's—that's that's rough to take. Every entrepreneur thinks their business is worth way, way more than what it actually is worth to investors or somebody like that. And so, be prepared for that hit. I think that's a, a real challenging one. But second piece of advice that that I would offer: just don't take yourself so seriously. You know what I mean? Don't be a greedy entrepreneur. Share the wealth and don't be afraid to take on investors.
1: Well, if someone would say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you?
0: The best way to reach me is through our website, apexsupercritical.com. And Apex is spelled A-P-E-K-S, apexsupercritical.com. You can also send me an email, Andy J A N D Y J
1: at apexsupercritical.com. Sounds like dude, a lot of people put an X instead of, oh, you bought the domain. That's what <laughs> I, I was about to ask because I noticed you did the K and I'm like, let me see if someone actually has the X. But yeah, good job. Good job on that one. Thank you again, Andy, for coming on and sharing your story.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it. So that I
1: already, that was the original product that I sold on my YouTube channel or that, that, I, sh- that I used on myself. Do you not want to tell us about this at all? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Austin. I don't, I don't think this interview is... Like, I don't understand that it's like something, either you're distracted or something's going on. I, I... Because I mean, all I'm asking is about, like most people are excited about talking about the product that they finally made and it sounds like you're not excited about it at all. I, I just feel like I have not. I feel like so I'm if you want access to this awkward interview and other exclusive interviews that we haven't published on our main feed, well, join our Patreon where you can get exclusive interviews that we already have ready for you just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash patreon or check your episode notes below on how you can help us keep bringing you this awesome show